Greetings, and welcome to Currents, a new podcast hosted through the Edmund W. Gordon Institute for Urban and Minority Education, more familiarly known as UMI. This podcast is a result of hours of thinking and discussion about how UMI would enter and contribute to this medium. The title Currents best captures the flow of ideas and the formation of knowledge, which often shifts and changes like currents in bodies of water. It also allows us to enter a discussion about current events, to have the benefit of scholarly knowledge and research without the lag time of publication. Finally, I would like Currents to connect scholars to their work and what inspires them. This podcast will provide a space where a network of scholars and stakeholders can share their views on current events, influences on their work, and the inspiration of their lives in the creation of knowledge. I'm Professor Callie Waite, an affiliate faculty member in UMI and a historian in the program in history and education here at Teachers College. I've described the work of historians as not only studying the past, but preserving the present for those who come behind us and hopefully shaping the future with our knowledge. With that in mind, historians are, quite simply, storytellers. I'm here to share the stories of our TC faculty beyond what their publications tell us. In this deeply fraught and complex time, where education and knowledge are critically important and often threatened, it is imperative that we hear how scholars are connected to their work and its relevance to our current challenges. I'm excited for the conversations in this series. Today, our guest is Dr. Davinia Gregory Kamika, Assistant Professor of Arts Administration. Welcome, Dr. Gregory Kamika. Hi, Dr. Waite. Thank you very much for having me. We're always very excited to hear from you. Dr. Gregory Kamika's full biography and selected list of publications is on our podcast webpage, accessible through the UMI website. To list her many accomplishments would take up a significant part of this podcast. So first, thank you, Dr. Gregory Kamika, for taking this adventure with us in our first season. Let me also add that I'm especially excited to have you here as a relatively new faculty member at TC and also a member of my department, Arts and Humanities. I mention this only because I get a chance to hang out with you and learn more in settings beyond just this one. I really want to start with um, what brought you to TC and arts administration? I, I went to graduate school to study sociology. I'm at TC uh, teaching arts administration. And I knew because my background was in art that I wanted to do something within the arts. And my study at graduate school was all about sociology of arts and race and cultural policy and how particularly black and brown led arts organizations can navigate their cultural policy landscapes in different national settings to in order to thrive. Um, And I realized when I was there that the UK was just one place, every place functioned differently. And I worked out that by coming to the States, I'd be able to look at our, what's seen as our nearest cultural policy landscape. And so I took up the opportunity to do an overseas institutional visit in my final year of grad school. And while I was here, I fell in love with TC. And I realized that a sociology department, a straight sociology department was not going to serve my research 
interests as well as being in a place where I was working with sociologists, but we were working on arts arts organisations, thinking about what makes them work, what makes them tick, and what makes them useful for people. Um, and so that's how I ended up here. And so how, how does arts administration, this program, which people don't really know that much about because... Um, while you are a sociologist, and so too is um, Jennifer Lena, the other faculty member, a sociologist, you all aren't just dealing in one discipline. So could you talk a little bit about um, the fields that the program encompasses and just like a smattering of like who the different types of students are who come in and what they do when they leave? Wow. We are really broadly interdisciplinary. Um, it's something that drew me to the program because I've always been that, that way inclined. And our students are coming from so many different backgrounds. Um, we are one of the few programs of our kind where we focus on performing and visual arts. So we have students coming from performance backgrounds. We have students who are practically visual artists. We have students who are very entrepreneurial, wanting to start up um, social enterprises, um, arts-based social enterprises. Um, We have students from all over the world. Um, We're one of TC's, I think, most um, international programs. we have students who are coming for a business and leadership experience and and training experience and we also have students who are coming for um a kind of sociological humanities more ethics focused um experience and it just depends on where they're coming from so some people are coming from social sciences and want the business side some people are coming from arts and want a kind of mixture of social sciences and business and we offer the opportunity to do all of those things so what are some what are some alum doing just give us three or four examples we have uh, people doing development at the high line we have people who've set up their own arts organizations i think there's um there there are people all over the world there's somebody um in lithuania who has become one of the the biggest kind of cultural um, voices there, voices in arts and culture there. So we, the people kind of go all over the place in different fields within the arts. We have curators, um, development officers, educators, museum educators, um, and then people who go back into performance, for instance. So in some ways, this fulfills a little bit of what uh, we talked about before, that you had these multiple careers. And like so many people, you end up in a field that seems to define you, and yet you can't be held by those parameters of just sociology. It changes how you think about sociology or how we might think about the discipline of sociology and then sort of breaks those boundaries and makes connections and intersections um, all, all over the place. So that's fitting, and I would say in some ways then, your career is an example for some of your students um, in terms of having experience as a curator, as an illustrator, and of course also the huge rite of passage being a doctoral student and coming out of that experience. But what I really wanted to spend some time talking about today 
is what is your um, current work? What are you working on right now? And why do you feel that it is um, relevant to our current situation? And I know that's a huge question. So let's start with what you're working on now, and then we'll begin to make some connections. Um, in the true spirit of interdisciplinarity, I'm working on a variety of things. <laughs> so I am working on with a colleague and dear friend of mine in the UK, Sabrina Rahman at University of Exeter, um, a book which is in its infancy, which is likely to be called The Routledge Companion to Race and Design. And it's a co-edited book um, with mm, around 30 contributions um, in which people of colour, scholars of colour, share our own perspectives on race and design. Thus, design historians, design thinkers, um, and, and designers. And we have a series of research conversations um, between designers and curators. And also I'm contributing to um, an exhibition. So there's an exhibition opening in Liverpool, UK this month, actually, I think it's today. <laughs> um, and we should note it's 2-22-22. Um, right. Which is supposed to either bring incredibly good luck, but other numerologists are not impressed with that number. So either way, it seems to be an auspicious date to start this exhibition. Tell us more about it. So the exhibition is, um, a, it's an exhibition of the collection of uh, an art collector by the name of Teresa Roberts, who is a businesswoman in the UK whose family migrated from Jamaica when she was eight years old. And this was, um, I think, in the pre-independence period, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, if not, maybe just after. But she has maintained a, a collection of post-independence Jamaican art. And I was asked to write a piece uh, for the catalogue. And when I was, I decided not to write about the art itself or the collection um, the context of the collection, but the fact of the collection and what it means for me as a second generation black British person of Jamaican descent in the 21st century. Um, and it was a piece that was scholarly in a different way. It was experiential, it was personal, it was autoethnographic, and it focused on the connection of this thing, this exhibition, and the fact of the collection being owned by this woman who has the same history as my parents, um, in that fact anyway, uh, the connection of that to the material culture of my parents' house and the way that houses and interiors have changed over the generation from that moment of migration right the way through two generations to me. And then it talks about my career, it talks about the experience of black British womanhood. It talks about um, where home is 
for somebody like me um, who doesn't see home through a neat prism of nation um, but sees home in traces within buildings, scenery, people um, and what really being part of I guess a double diaspora right is is like trying to make that viscerally accessible to the reader um, and it was something that I wrote in a day and it just tumbled out of me but it felt like I'd been researching it my whole life and it felt like the basis of a lot of what I do in my more traditionally scholarly work. Mm-hmm. So two, two follow-up questions on that. One, can you tell us a little bit about what's in this art collection because I think not everyone is familiar when we talk about post-independence, we're talking about Jamaica becoming independent. And some of, I think, what you're, what I would call as a historian artifacts, um, but those things that were in the collection that were um, resonated with you because of what was in your parents' house or almost in every um, house within that type of community. So can you just give us an idea of what some of those um, objects or artifacts may have been, just to add a little bit of visual interest for us to understand. And then I have a a second question, but I'm going to let you answer that first. So this is where the piece was interesting because it was not about the artifacts in the collection. There were actually not very many artifacts at all. They were mostly paintings. This was about the fact of the collection within a museum. And yes, Jamaica became independent uh, in 1961 um but it and it was since then that I was talking about connection with the place um so this was before I was born um and my parents had left before that well they they left shortly after my dad in 1965 and my mother in the 70s um but they didn't have the means to collect things after they left they didn't have the means really to return until the year before I was born 1981 so it was a matter of looking at this thing this fact of this thing and seeing that actually a lot of Jamaican art is collected by people who didn't grow up in the island and also maybe didn't weren't part of this Windrush generation we call them who migrated to England and seeing that that was in the hands of this person and it had come to this gallery in Liverpool, which strikes me always, and I write about it, as this world-facing city because of its connection to empire and its situation on the water, it being on the water looking out and it having been a slave port, a dock. A, um, a dock. And thinking about um, how home is in the in the traces within that city in ways that are painful because of my family's history in Jamaica and with enslavement and the history of Liverpool within black history within Britain it it's all connected and so being in a museum there which is taken out of its context and kind of sanitized in this way that happens when art painting artifacts are exhibited in museums it felt like a con- I felt a connection with it um, because I had also been taken and put into museum environments when I was quite young 
doing museum work and wondering what that meant for somebody for whom that wasn't there was barely anyone who looked like me in the in the positions that I was going for where do I see home what's my place there that so yes. that's actually really helpful and it leads to this other piece of the question that when you said it was scholarly in its own way and I think that that's something that when people write from, you say it tumbled out of you, but you felt like you had been researching it your whole life. And there are always these things that seem to come very easily because they resonate with with the author um, or they resonated with, with you. But what was the response to something that would be considered otherwise scholarly? In other words, it wasn't a list of the the pieces and how they were collected and how they came to be rather it was something different and so um one i think it's important to point out that being scholarly can mean a whole bunch of things it's quite broad and it becomes even broader when you're when you're an interdisciplinary scholar but i'm curious to know how people responded to um what you wrote and how it has been received, I suppose. Well, almost everyone I've read it to has cried. <laughs> and I do, in my work, my broader work, um, consider emotions as data and emotions as definitely ways into um, deeper explanations of, of facts, right? Were you surprised that people cried and did you understand why? Yes, uh, I was, uh, yes to both things <laughs> in the end. So I was surprised that people cried um, because most of the time when I was reading it, because it was so personal, I did not look at their responses until the end. Um, and I did ask why. Um, the there were several people for whom this was also personal who had the same experience of, as me as of as be of of being um somebody a second generation um black british person of jamaican descent um who had that same i start with the description of an independence commemorative mug um in my parents house and who had that same memory of having that mug on the shelf in their parents' house. Those kinds of things that are evocative, that um, inspire emotion, yes. And the idea that there is, a, there is a mourning for the rupture that happened um, generations ago, the double rupture that happened from home and, and the loss of uh, a neat national home, but also for people who were not um who were not connected to the history in that same way I was very surprised um at the emotion and the the response was always just wow there are so many layers to this and hearing it they've they've said and this is why I I chose initially not to have it there as a text piece 
um, that it was hearing it in my accent, hearing my voice, um, but that it deals with some deep theory about home, migration, belonging, um, colonialism, um, decolonization, what that could mean, but puts it into a personal context that they hadn't necessarily heard in this way before. Um, and that those responses were from people I didn't even really know personally. Um, and people responded to it on different levels. So I found the people who were most emotional were either those who shared my experience or were those who were engaged in scholarly work from critical perspectives. Um, and those who were, uh, who connected with it in a, in a more distanced way um, seemed to connect with it as people who had migrated from somewhere or, um, or whose parents had or something like that, you know? So what we've done here is actually made people want to hear what this introduction to the exhibition is, um, which hopefully will come in time because I know that they're thinking that you all are in the process of, of doing a video about this. But I want to um, pull the lens out a little bit. I focused in on this one piece and I want to talk a little bit about sort of the methodology, for lack of a better term, or we could call it theory. But the notion of doing research from a personal standpoint, which we are always so warned off of doing, right? That we cannot speak in the eye. We cannot express what this experience was that is so powerful. And I really don't want that to get lost, that you said something very important when you said it was scholarly in its own way. Whereas in old paradigms, you would think, well, no, it can't be because you wrote, you did not list the collection. You did not say what was in it. Rather, you talked about your experience with it. And I know that you um, feel quite strongly about this. So I want to talk just a couple of minutes to think about this idea of both the benefit and the detriment and in a sense, the power and the antithesis of power in putting oneself in one's research, in speaking in a sense from the I. So while you're thinking about that, I'll just share this. You know, one of the things that's hardest for historians to do in our methodology is don't think that historians are objective. They certainly are not. The topics that they choose make them totally biased. You read the introduction, you find out who they work with, you sort of figure out where historians are coming from. But what historians are supposed to be is anonymous. And so when asked to put myself or when we are asked to put ourselves and our reaction or what research invokes in us, we're almost incapable of doing it because our training has made us take and to talk about ourselves is even harder. Right. I mean, in the context of doing this research. So I just wanted to for people who are thinking you know, well, the only way to really talk about this is to talk about how I understand it or how I relate to it. And I think that's something that you've done and yet have identified and set the model for being scholarly. So I just want to talk about um, kind of the challenge uh, or the things that I said before of what it means to put yourself in the research, to write from the I um, perspective. Mm -hmm. I am actually not going to start with my own words at all because what you made me think of was something that I live by that was actually said by Stuart Hall. So I want to read it 
Um, it says, he said, I do want to talk about the past, but not in that way, not in a patriarchal way as the keeper of the conscience, hoping to police you back into line of what it really was if only you knew. That is to say, I want to absolve myself of the many burdens of representation that people carry around. I carry around at least three. I'm expected to speak for the entire black race on all questions, theoretical, critical, etc., and sometimes for British politics. This is what is known as the black person's burden, and I would like to absolve myself of it at this moment. That means, paradoxically, by speaking autobiographically. And I think that is where I'm coming from. Because I... <laughs> There can be no true objectivity and there can be no real anonymity and I say that there can be no real anonymity. I, yeah, I do stand by that. What we're taught to do, and I say this thinking that perhaps I might like you to edit it out if I, if I lose... I lose my bravery is to imitate the standpoint of an upper upper middle class white man cisgendered heterosexual white man and that is deemed objectivity and the more that you can assimilate to that the closer you get to being seen as universally universally applicable and legitimated and I reject that so my standpoint as an unambiguously black woman who has lived in the world in my body enables me to see things that some other sociologists might not that has value and that's the standpoint from which I approach research so I think that um, you answered that beautifully. And the Stuart Hall quote is enough. Whether or not uh, you'll be brave enough to say it, I'll say it. Because here is my response to that quote, where it says, I don't want to police and I don't want to tell you what's right. Well, I do want to police and I do want to tell you what's right from my perspective, Right. Which is kind of we're, we're getting around the same thing. But if part of our goal as and I just will talk about history, if part of the goal is to tell um, the full American story, then I want to tell the full American story, which remains largely untold because we don't hear from anybody except um, sort of majority groups. And so I do want to take those standards of history and apply to the apply them to those places that have been unheard and to those people who have been unheard and and police in that way to say you have to include this. So I appreciate very much that that quotation and the fact that it is a paradox that you have to speak autobiographically. And I think that you got at something else that's really really important which is there is the issue of representation which is very different than the issue of responsibility because you are representing, we all are part of multiple communities and you may be representing um, a different thing to different people, but you are not responsible for everybody who has melanin in their skin and to represent their 
position. That is not your responsibility. The reason that I include the I and I do it in my, I say more scholarly work. I don't know if that's the right thing, but more traditionally scholarly work as well. Is that I, I, I work from the assumption that there, there isn't a truth to be revealed, one truth to be revealed, that we have multifaceted, a multifaceted truth of which only some of the facets we've been taught to see. And we need to be able to see as many of those facets as possible. And that that human experience and therefore human knowledge grows with every baby that's born who comes in and experiences the world differently. So it's constantly, infinitely more complex. And instead of being a, a sociologist who narrows things down into categories to try and understand the world by reducing it, I try to expand my my methodology to be able to meet it where it is and understand it in all of its complexity. And in order to do that, I need to understand that we are made up of several eyes, of which I am one. And so I insert myself into that so that then myself can communicate with and understand somebody else's self and somebody else's self. But I think what I would like to say in response to that is why what you do is very important. What you take for granted that you are many eyes and you have to, that you want to expand the world and meet it where it is as opposed to categorizing. And when that type of work enters the scholarly world, it cracks open the space for other people to do the same thing. And so therefore, the field can't help but to expand, to look in places where it hasn't looked before, to write in ways that haven't been written before, to include people who haven't been included before, to include perspectives that haven't been included before. So the simple question or the simple change in methodology to say, I am many eyes, right? is really sort of groundbreaking in a way. It's very, it's very, very powerful. And if nothing else, I think that it helps people to understand that in scholarship, there are all of these parameters and we can't break all of them at once, but we can begin to shift them a little bit. I've been hiding behind anonymity for years, so I'm not going to let you tell me there is no true anonymity. I continue to hide behind the notion of, of the historian. Um, but I want to thank you for everything that you said. And I think it was really um, enlightening to think about how we do the work we do and where we put ourselves in that work and our relation to it. Uh -huh. So I want to thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you for sharing your ideas, your thoughts. Um, as well as your valuable time. It's really been a pleasure. And thanks to all of you who are listening. If you're curious about our next conversation, please visit the UMI webpage and subscribe. Our web address is tc.edu forward slash IUME. There you can find a full bio of Dr. Gregory Kamika and a list of her selected publications. On our webpage, you can also find more information about each of our episodes 
and you can see that our guests come from a wide range of fields. We are interested in knowledge and its production across and through the disciplines, so I hope you'll join us. Once again, this is Professor Callie Waite wishing you the best.